This is Mike. And this is Drew. Welcome to the Mike and Drew at Mountain View podcast. It is March 1st, 2023. And for episode nine, we want to know why is the truth of the Trinity so important? Today, we have a special guest, Ryan Kirst, who is a student at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And you were excited about this topic of the Trinity. I am. I'm very uh, passionate about the Trinity. And you've got books all over the place. He wheeled in his own library, and we're so happy. (laughs) We're so happy about it. And uh, Ryan, one of the things you mentioned was that this might not be as practical as a lot of people would like, but Drew, I think this was something we wanted to do earlier on, is to dive into these kinds of topics. Yeah, I was uh, reading a book this morning, um, kind of prepping for this. I don't know where it is. My my office is a mess, but basically it said it may seem at first that it's not practical, but in fact, it is like one of the most important things we could talk about, and therefore it is extremely practical. Absolutely. And it the scriptures reference this concept, the word you will not find in the scripture, um, unless, Ryan, you found something in the Greek or Hebrew, but uh, and I want you to feel free to steer this ship the way you would yeah, like to. I've got a couple of truths I'd like to touch on by the end of the podcast, but... I'm open to this going where it needs to go. So what what do you think we need to know about the Trinity right now? Well, I think the concept or the reality is the better word of the Trinity begins with who God is. I mean, God within himself, uh, the Trinity is the most ultimate truth that is found within God. And one of the pitfalls that some people have with the concept of the Trinity is, for example, the word Trinity is not in Scripture. Uh, But we do see throughout Scripture the Trinity being described or the Trinity being alluded to. Yeah, we see different instances where all three members of the Trinity are in the same place at the same time. Yeah, and you even, in all four Gospels, you're going to, find the truth of a triune God, uh, especially in the case of the baptism of Jesus. And Mark 1, 9 through 11 says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the the water, here it is, immediately he saw the Mm -hmm. heavens being torn open and the Spirit, capital S, descending on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven, You are my beloved Son with you, I am well pleased, and we find that in all four Gospels. And so just by the fact that someone from heaven identifies Jesus as the Son, that is very clearly going to be the Father. That's how you relate to a Son. And there's other references and other passages, but to me that's the clearest snapshot or thumbnail of the Trinity in Scripture. Mm -hmm. Well, and when the—I'm going to call them the Nicene Fathers, the people who wrote the Nicene Creed— when they were formulating the doctrine of the Trinity, they took the names Father, Son, and Spirit. They, the, they took that in Scripture and they said, here's why the Father is called the Father. Here's why the Son is called the Son. The Father is called the Father because He's unbegotten. And then the Son is called the Son because of this concept called eternal generation that the Son is generated from the Father eternally, meaning that the Son is known as the Son because He's generated from the Father. And then the Spirit proceeds 
is the language that is used from the Father and the Son, or spirated. That's why the Spirit is Spirit. And this is where the waters get really muddy really fast yeah. if if you don't keep track of these scriptures, because mm. immediately I, I can just imagine that our email uh, podcast at mvcc6mile.org is going to be filled, our inbox will be filled with corrections about, you know, modalism and all these concerns mm. about incorrect doctrines uh, and, and even right. object lessons of the Trinity that fall short, because what you just explained is going to be from a human perspective. When we mm-hmm. look at God, we see that Jesus has always been the Son. The Son has always been in existence. The Son has always right. been in existence for all eternity, as, such a, as is the Spirit and the Father. And yet, from our perspective, the Son comes from the Father and worships the Father and thanks the Father and prays to the Father, and the Spirit does the bidding of the Son and the Father, according to the words of Jesus. And yet, from God's perspective, they are three mm. in one. So what would you say are some essential truths before we get any further into the, the true but more complicated part of the conversation? What are a few key basic true statements about the one true triune mm. God? Well, in Exodus 3, God reveals himself Uh this is Exodus three, fourteen. If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. So God reveals himself to the people of Israel seemingly as one. Right? The concept of the Trinity is not fully realized until... New Testament times. So when God reveals himself, he reveals himself as one. But then we throw a kink in that. If we go to the beginning of Genesis, uh, the word Elohim for God used in Genesis is plural. So we have kind of marks of the Trinity throughout the Old Testament. Uh, But most of our time will probably be spent in the New Testament because that's where the doctrine is realized. Right, so you you will find hints of it, but there would not be enough evidence in the Old Testament alone to say there's definitely a triune God. It's more of an after the fact. You look back and go, "Holy smokes, it's been there the whole time." Yep. You know, He's been there the whole time. You know, three statements uh, I would say are this: God is three persons. Each person is fully God. There is one God. Do all three of us here in this mm. podcast agree on that? Yeah, I'd agree with that. Okay. Well, that, in other words, to simplify it just for a minute, because it's worth diving in the deep end, but I also know that whoever's listening, uh, this could lead to unnecessary controversy, or it could lead to a healthy learning. I, you yeah, know, I, I, I'm open to conversation. Mm-hmm. Drew, is there anything you think we're missing in the basic setup of this? No, I think that makes sense. The other uh, passage I wanted to bring in was uh, 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen. Paul's like finishing out his letter, very last verse in the book. It says, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship mm. of the Spirit yeah. be with you all. And so wow. right there, he mentions all three, bam, bam, bam. Right. And so um, the writers of the New Testament understood this concept. Maybe not in a, in the same way that we understand it, but it's definitely there. And he doesn't 
break it down. And that's part of where the complication comes in. He didn't feel the need to break it down. It was an accepted truth. Yeah, it just was. Yeah, he's not defending it. He's not explaining it. He is saying, this is what it is. And we get something similar from the Apostle Paul at uh, in the middle of the other letter to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 8, 5 through 6, even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is, and here we go, Ryan, back to what you'd mentioned in Exodus, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist exists through him. And I know the Spirit's not mentioned in that particular text, but it's mentioned several times in 1 Corinthians. The point is that for Paul, and as he's leading the early church, this is not an option. This is the truth and the reality that the Son of God is a part of this Godhead, and we are trying to wrap our minds around the manifestation of that. I think a good uh, proof for the Trinity is that the People in the first century who were disciples of the apostles believed in the Trinity. And not saying that there can't be error, but when you have somebody who followed an apostle and is teaching the Trinity, that's a good sign that this is what the apostles believed. Yes. Yes, and and, and nothing is corrected in a major way, and that belief exists still to this day. And this this word Trinity it was uh, used just to describe this threefold manifestation that we see in Scripture of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's just us trying to wrap our minds mm-hmm. around it. There's no need to put a label um, to it in Scripture because it just is a truth. It's when the other truths, and I don't know if anybody wants to dive into false explanations of the Trinity, if anybody's got any interest in doing that, but we had to come up with this word to define what the truth is. So if you guys come up against any false doctrines or teachings of the Trinity. (laughs) I mean, so I went to Christian school growing up and this is no fault of my first grade teacher, but I remember going over the, the Trinity being the different parts of an apple, the seed, (laughs) the, the fruit and the skin. Yeah. Or the, I just read one. Oh, the, the, the leaf, the clover. Yes. Where it's mm. the three parts of the leaf, but it's one leaf, that kind of thing. Like we've kind of come to realize, and I've come to realize as I've gotten older, those aren't really correct at all, actually. Right. <laughs> and, and how do you make a, a lesson consistent with the Godhead as we read about it in, in our finite form? Because w- one of the more common I see in certain holiness movements is modalism. And that mm-hmm. is the belief that God existed as the Father in the Old Testament, the Son in the New, and the Spirit today. Yeah, he puts on different hats. Yeah, That's puts on how. different hats, and, and it's like, no, like you pointed out in the Old Testament, God has conversations with himself. And as we see in the New Testament, Jesus, who is 100% God and 100% human, and we get that out of Luke one thirty five, he prays to the Father, and yet he never gives up his sonship. Luke one thirty five is very clear. The angel answered and said to her, Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God, capital S. So that nature existed simultaneously mm. with the Holy Spirit and with the Father. There is, there's no delineation there, and he did right. not exist in different modes, such as right. modalism. Absolutely. Or and I, I think... 
a principle is that certainly the patristic fathers used, uh, early church fathers used, was uh, God ad intra, God ad extra. So God within himself, God how he operates with creation and his creatures. Uh, So when God sends Jesus to the earth in the incarnation of Christ, um, something changes, right? Because we know that if God is one essence, he's one will, he's one being. So how in the New Testament can Jesus say, I do the will of my Father, right? Well, it's because Jesus takes on the form of a human. He becomes a servant. And so his human will is obeying the Father, not his divine will. Right, his divine will is already one accord. Right, it's upholding the universe. Yes. And I, I think the point of this podcast is not just to get people thinking about it, but to realize what's at stake. We we made this a topic because it is important today in our training of believers, in our encouragement of previously existing and maturing believers, and of new believers. Uh, back in 2020, September 8, 2020, Lifeway Research shared some interesting truths about uh, American Christians and their belief concerning the Trinity, and that is that 72% believe there is one true God in three persons. And uh, Scott McConnell, who's the executive director at the time, he said, for 54% of Americans, theological beliefs are not a matter of objective truth, but rather belong in the category Mm. of subjective personal opinion. And I love this part. Many Americans treat theology like a choose-your-own-adventure book. Mm. I feel like many Americans treat everything like a (laughs) choose-your-own-adventure book. (laughs) So why why is it important that we nail down the truth of the Trinity, uh, not just in the truth of our minds, but what does that what does that impact in our practical Christian ministries? I mean, um, when I I think I was a sophomore, probably I took an intro to theology class, and the professor talked about how, I mean, God is like the biggest, most important, most powerful mm. being in the world, and it is so important that when we talk about Him. We, we speak rightly and truthfully about him. Um, even as we're trying to understand and trying to creatively come up with new ways to talk about him, it, it needs to be truthful always. Absolutely. Wow. And I think it saves us from heresies. Yes, I mean, the exactly. whole yes. reason we have the Trinity or the Nicene Creed is in a response to a heresy. Right. Right, and those things didn't need to be so defined before until the heresy arrives, and then they say, hold on, we need to write this down. Yeah, I mean, as you read through some church history, you see, okay, someone someone sets out and says, okay, I think God is this. And everyone's like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. And then someone's like, hold on, that no, that's not right. That can't be right. Right, this, this contradicts something right. and that's what we're seeing in our american culture and yes around the world but to us who just really have experience right here we see that people are okay believing in contradictory truths mm-hmm. and like you just said drew i love that what your professor was mentioning that because god is the greatest in the universe we better make sure when we're talking about him or addressing him 
it is truth. That is important. Right. And it has repercussions, true supernatural repercussions, right? If we believe he exists and created this world and is doing everything we read in Scripture, it's a big deal that we get this right about who he is, truly. Yeah. Well, and it's incredible. It comes down to one letter. So Athanasius of Alexandria, someone who is writing, uh, is at the Council of Nicaea formulating the Nicene Creed. The word is homoousios. It means of the same substance. Hmm. That's the word that is in the Nicene Creed to describe the Son, the nature of the Son. He's of the same substance as the Father. What Arians wanted to put in the Creed was homoousios. It's one letter, and it means of similar substance. Hmm. It changes the whole meaning. Absolutely. So theological truth comes down sometimes to one letter between orthodoxy and heresy. Yeah. It's so important to be precise about our theology because if we aren't precise about our theology, our people suffer, our congregants suffer. And it's hard to share that message in a culture that says we need to let everybody believe their relative truth and leave them alone, and yet we have this burden of understanding that the truth is everything in this in this case in this instance we need to know what we're talking about and Jesus said in John 10:30 I and the Father are one, one. not similar yeah. and that's essential from Jesus own teaching and and in the great commission Jesus told us all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of this age. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. That's a part of the mission of the church that continues today. Mm. That That is essential to who we're introducing people to. We're introducing them to the one true God, Father, Son, Spirit. Any other big thoughts that jump out on this topic of the Trinity? I know we could go for hours but for now, for today, to uh, respect people's time as they listen to this, and just, are there, is there anything else we want people listening to this to think about uh, for the rest of the day? I mean, you stole mine. I was gonna, I was gonna say the Great Commission. I'll give it back to you. No, I'm good. We already wrote it. Read it. It's good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if Jesus said it, that's good enough for me, and uh, apparently is good enough for Drew and Ryan. I appreciate. All the, I mean, you've got so many books and papers you didn't even touch, but what, what, we've got a few more minutes here. I mean, what's something else that's on your heart about this topic for the church today? I think one of the things that is so important to me and in my community, my church community, is, and I know there are probably some denominational differences, so that, that's okay, but the use of liturgy and creeds from church history uh, has helps helps our people understand these truths about Scripture, because not everybody is adept at theology necessarily. Uh, but it, it's it's like hymns or Christian music. Our people can memorize doctrines through music. Our people can memorize doctrines yes. through creeds. Yeah, for sure. 
And not saying that a creed is inspired, absolutely not. Uh, but they are helpful tools yes. for our people to understand these truths in the Christian faith that have been here for thousands of years. Yes. And let's give a shout out to um, your minister, Ash, and because he's shared yeah. a little bit about this. So give, give a quick shout out to the, the, the fellowship that meets there at Vienna Coffee in Maryville, Tennessee, and give, give a little shout out, a little, little explanation. Yeah, so we're a church plant uh, of Pleasant Grove Baptist Church. We're called Pleasant Grove at College Street. We meet at Vienna in Maryville, Tennessee uh, at 5 in the evening. And uh, we are a Southern Baptist church, but Ash, our pastor, has some more liturgical leanings. And so we do church a little bit differently We than most Baptist churches. We do communion every week, and we use uh, a liturgy every week. And uh, it looks more historical than some churches do today. And I think that's really cool, uh, retrieving the the liturgy from the past yes. teaches us about the past and it helps us move into the future by staying anchored to truths that the church has believed for 2000 years. Yeah, cuz you can't cite 20 passages of scripture in a minute but you can exactly. you can't have a creed or some statement that encapsulates all the things we do believe. And Drew, you and I enjoy Vienna and running into ministers and I loved hearing about this. Now, you said 5 p.m. Is that on Sunday nights when you get Sunday nights, okay. yes. Okay. Yeah, so, you know, if you're listening to this and you're in the area, I, I'd recommend checking it out. I enjoy talking to Ash. And then after that, come over here at 6 p.m. Uh, to Mountain View <laughs> for our uh, Bible study downstairs. And um, Drew, anything else you want to throw in before we wrap up? I feel like we should do another podcast episode just on liturgy. I feel like we're going to need to do a follow-up or two yeah. with Ryan here. So, <laughs> Ryan, thank you so much for joining the Mike and Drew thank you all. at my Mountain View Podcast. This has been a blast. Uh, this has been Mike. And Drew. And you've been listening to the Mike and Drew at Mountain View Podcast. Email us at mvcc 6 No. What is it? You had it right, podcast. Podcast at, at mvcc6mile. That's the number six. Dot org or dot com? Dot org. Dot org. I... We've been, anyway, eat We've your out of practice. We're doing this. No, yeah, eat your, eat your vegetables. <laughs> I was going to say eat your uh, eat your quesadillas. I'm just going to be honest. I haven't eaten vegetables in a while. I actually make amazing quesadillas. Okay, eat your quesadillas. Eat some quesadillas. <laughs>